Good morning, everybody. <clears throat> there we are. Um, so, first slide. There we are. That's great. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> when I was in my mid-twenties, I had a T-shirt with kid born in shed written on the front of it. Uh, on the back, there was a picture of the face of Jesus in profile, and he was looking down, and he was sad and, and, and downcast. I loved that T-shirt. It was a really good conversation starter. That phrase on the front, kid born in shed saves world. You could just watch people reading it and the, the cogs whirling in their mind and the pennies start to drop. Oh, this is a Jesus T-shirt. And, and the picture on the back, kid born in shed saves world through suffering. Well, the humble circumstances of Jesus' birth are often remarked upon. People often talk about the humility of his birth. And people often make the connection, as we've already done this morning so very well, often make the connection that, uh, between the fact that uh, these circumstances are not what we expect of a king. No, we expect palaces and, and, and pomp and parades and displays of power and prestige. Instead, we're presented with a kaleidoscope picture of humble circumstances, of humility. Not a palace, but a shed or barn, traditionally speaking. Although, of course, in more recent times, Bible scholars have realized that that's not what Luke was telling us. Jesus was born in the living room because the guest room was already taken. And he was placed in the feeding trough in other words, down one end of the living room because there was no furniture. A basic, no-frills house in Bethlehem, the dwelling of pastoralist peasants. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, a hamlet too little to be listed as one of the towns of Judah, a nowhere place. But at that particular time, it was nevertheless crowded, and it was crowded because of a census. And we know about censuses because we have them too. I think the last one was, was in mid-August. Perhaps you remember where you were when the census happened. I was in Darwin. Uh, but our censuses, censi, censuses, I think it is actually censuses. Um, but our censuses are about governments, our governments wanting to use the resources at their disposal wisely, justly, fairly. In total contrast, the census back then, uh, the census that Luke tells us about, it was an oppressive instrument of an alien government, Caesar in Rome, wanting to make sure that he could squeeze every last coin out of the lands that he had conquered, and by doing so, not just get astronomically rich, but also, perhaps even more importantly, keeping his enemies poor and powerless. That was the point. Mary and Joseph were um, engaged but not married, according to Luke, and we are probably correct in imagining that that created difficulties for them. The first witnesses of the birth of the Saviour, uh, of the Messiah, were shepherds, rough-cut men who were despised by others. In indeed, the testimony of shepherds was considered in ineligible in court, for everybody knew that shepherds could not be trusted. 
when later Joseph and Mary get to the temple in Jerusalem for the purification rites and to offer the sacrifices required by the law of Moses, they offer a pair of doves or two young pigeons, the concessional sacrifice for poor people who can't afford the proper sacrifice, which was a lamb and a dove or a pigeon. If we bring Matthew's account into the equation, we know that Jesus and his family had to spend the next few years of their lives as refugees in Egypt in order to escape persecution. So Jesus was born in extremely humble circumstances, at a time and in a place and in a manner that none of us would choose for ourselves. The question really is, therefore, what do we make of that? Well, one level, we're aware of the irony, aren't we? Kid born in shed saves world. Kid born in poverty ends up ruling the world. That's, that's a lovely success story. We all love success stories. And we love a success story that has an ironic twist in it based upon somebody overcoming terrible odds or unusual handicaps. This would make a great film. We love the ironic twist at another level. We register it as somehow inherently praiseworthy that Jesus would choose, that the Father would choose uh, humble circumstances. We, we, we register that God is not a show-off. Isn't that nice? And perhaps God wants, us, God wants to show us that he's not scary. And perhaps he wants to show us that he knows what it's like through the earthbound experience of his son to be a battler. You know, and that's extremely democratic of him. We can all applaud that. Indeed, we might in Australia also want to applaud, applaud that spirit of egalitarianism. He's, he's a tradie, the son of a tradie. What a good bloke. Uh, so we enjoy at Christmas time the humility of Christ's birth is perhaps ironic, perhaps praiseworthy, perhaps evidence of exceedingly good taste. But insofar as we have at this point mistaken the humility of God for the modesty of God, we completely miss the point. So perhaps we should take a moment to define modesty and to understand how modesty and humility differ. You see, modesty can be understood as lowering ourselves before others. That's modesty, and the opposite of modesty is boasting. Modesty is a praiseworthy virtue, but it isn't humility. Jesus speaks to Pharisees at one point in Luke chapter 14, suggesting that they act with modesty when it comes to dinner parties in order to avoid personal humiliation. So then likewise, we might in all modesty downplay or even hide in certain circumstances our own achievements or gifts or perhaps some nature or possession. We might downplay or hide those things in order to not provoke hostility and humiliation. Modesty is, is usually a good virtue. Um, for example, Paul, writing to Timothy, the pastor in the, of the church in Ephesus, having just told men to not bully each other and to not act aggressively towards each other, Paul writes this, I also want the women to dress 
modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearl or expensive clothes, etc., etc. And Paul is saying church is not the place for women to boast about their high social status in front of other women. The gospel is an end to boasting, to competitive vainglory. That's the point of all those elaborate hairstyles, is to show other women how exceedingly high class you are. When Paul writes, as another example of somebody being not modest, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that out of all of the apostles of Christ, he worked the hardest. And when he says that, Paul is casting all modesty aside. There's nothing modest about that statement, but the statement, which is undoubtedly true, is necessary for the sake of his readership, that they understand the extraordinary grace of God expressed in Paul's conversion and that that was not without effect. You see, there's a time for modesty and there's a time for speaking plainly and not downplaying what is plainly true. Modesty is a good thing. Modesty is lowering ourselves before others. But humility, in contrast, is lowering ourselves for others. Humility is loss of welfare for others. Humility is the use of advantage for the sake of others. Humility is use of one's own privileges, not for self-advancement, but for the advancement of others. The opposite of humility is pride, arrogance, self-importance, self-aggrandizement, selfish ambition. And insofar as we mistake the birth narratives to be a display of the modesty of God rather than the humility of God, we misunderstand that the humble circumstances of Christ's birth were necessary. They were necessary, and they were necessary for us. And we misunderstand how the humility of God fires a shot across our bows, a warning shot. This is the way history is going. How the humility of God is necessary for us to imitate and follow. God is telling us something so important as to be necessary. So why did we need Christ's birth circumstances to be so humble as an expression of the humility of God? Well, Paul tells us why in uh, his letter to the church of Philippi. Chapter 2, he writes, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. 
in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In the story of Jesus, from conception to resurrection, we see the wisdom of God, the character of God, we see the person of God and the glory of God on universal display. Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God, the one who shows us exactly who God is. We also see in Jesus of Nazareth what it means to be fully and completely and perfectly human. He shows us what it means to be a human being in the image and likeness of God. Jesus of Nazareth, son of man, the one who shows us who we were created to be. We now understand why the birth narratives of Christ display the humility of God and why that was necessary why it was necessary that Jesus might be born in humble circumstances. Because humility is a part of the character of God, to the glory of God. God is not driven by selfish ambition, vain conceit, self-preservation, self-importance, or self-aggrandizement. There is no part of God that is either proud or arrogant or boastful, and that there is no part of God that he himself is not willing to spend in the service of others. And all of this is seen climactically and perfectly in the cross, the full glory of God on universal display. To continue Paul's quote, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thus, because humility is foundational to who God is, it is a necessary part of what it means to be a human being. Pride and arrogance in human beings, in you and in me, pride and arrogance turns out to be not human at all, but rather just simply monstrous. And so whenever we might grasp a social, political or power advantage, we're on the wrong side of history. And we're failing in what it fundamentally means to be a human being. Mary understood all of that. Mary understood that the humility of God expressed in his choice of her for the mother of his child meant the sure promise of everything being turned upside down in the kingdom of the Son. She understood it was a shot across humanity's bowels, a warning shot. 
She understood that God's Christmas message was not about peace and prosperity to all, but rather it was about lifting up the humble and scattering those who are proud. It's about filling up the hungry and sending the, way, sending the rich away empty. Kid born in shed saves world. The humility of God on display in the humble circumstances of Christ's birth. Not the modesty of God, not the exceedingly good taste of God, not the uh, democratic spirit or egalitarian spirit of God, but rather the revelation of God, the revelation of who he is, the one who uses all of his power and advantages to save those who are at disadvantage, even us. And thus also the turning point in history, the call to fall in behind or be destroyed. This is something that should leave all of us shaking, trembling in our boots, shaking, trembling like Mary, trembling with fear or excitement or both. The Lord be with you all.